So we're in First Samuel, and uh, just to refresh your memory, as you turn there, we're in chapter one. Uh, we think of First and Second Samuel, but originally there wasn't the division. It, uh, it was in the Hebrew Scriptures, just one book came to be divided when the uh, Hebrew scriptures were translated for the first time into Greek. Then, for whatever reason, uh, we came up with First and Second Samuel. No problem. They cover the history of ancient Israel from the time of the last two judges and the first two kings. So Israel before... Uh, ancient Israel was governed by kings, had wise men, decision makers in the government called judges. So the last two judges in ancient Israel were Eli and Samuel, and the first two kings, Saul and David. So what we're going to read about covers the history uh, from uh, those two points, beginning and end. It's called Samuel, uh, our rabbis say, because he's the author of it. I think that's possible but not likely because we'll see that he dies about midway through 1 Samuel, so it's hard to write after that happens. And so it, maybe he wrote some of it, but it's likely someone else is the author. Who is that someone? We don't know. Why is it called Samuel? It's because you'll see he's one of the principal characters in the book, and soon you will read about him uh, um, in the text before us. The book was written approximately around 900 BC. That's not exact by no means. There's a range of dates, but I just throw that out to give you some general concept about 900 BC. Last week, we introduced the book by speaking about a man who lived in a place called Ramatayim Zophim, which later in the text is identified as Ramah. It means the heights or the hill country, kind of like our hill country here in uh, Texas. This man's name, the one who lived in the hill country, was Elkanah, and his lineage is given here. What's most important is that it says he has two wives. One was Penina, the name in Hebrew means pearl. The other, Hannah, which means grace. Penina had children. Hannah tragically had none. It's a very painful thing, as Maria alluded to today. And in that day, uh, being barren also had the connotation of divine disfavor. So a lady in that day was sort of like a social pariah, if you can um, uh, conceive of that. And it says that this man, Elkanah, the husband, would go up from his city, Ramah, yearly to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts. Would he go to Jerusalem? No, not yet. In fact, he and the other Israelites in the day would go from their uh, cities to Shiloh, Shiloh, because Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were before the temple was constructed in Jerusalem. So uh, Israel was a, an enslaved people led out of bondage, 40-year wilderness wandering, entered the promised land, and Solomon had not yet constructed the temple, but they carried with them uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and it was housed at this place called Shiloh. We go to Shiloh. In fact, Lord willing, I'll be going with a group in September. Uh, few tour groups go there because Shiloh is in what we hear today referred to as the West Bank, 
And so a number of tour groups shy away from it for political reasons, and we deliberately go there, both to be obnoxious about the whole thing, but more importantly, it's a place of great biblical significance and interest. Archaeologists are doing wonderful work there in Shiloh. In fact, they have uncovered in the bedrock holes in which they believe were placed the poles uh, of the tabernacle. And so you can go to this place uh, today, um, Shiloh. And, and Maria uh, spoke about uh, her um, adventure in uh, walking with the Lord and trusting him and um, the sadness of not being able yet to bear a child and yet the joy that there is in knowing the Lord Jesus. And she, as a representative of the Crisis Pregnancy Center, has spoken to us about um, options to abortion. When we go to Shiloh, uh, if my son Tim is with us, and he will be on this trip, I ask him to speak to us there because he and his wife have, are unable to have children and have adopted two the first of whom is named Samuel. And, and they specifically named him Samuel because of Hannah's experiences, you'll see, at this place called Shiloh. So it's in a very meaningful place. And you will be blessed there, I'm sure, Maria. Maria and Guillermo are going with us also in, in September, Lord willing. Okay, so uh, we're told that um, Eli, or in Hebrew, Eli, the priest there, had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, We'll find out later that these are not such good guys. Verse 4, and then when the day came that Elkanah would go up to sacrifice, what he would do is he'd give, sacrifice was food, he'd give a portion of it to Penina, but he'd give a double portion to Hannah. Why? He means well. He's a good guy. She has no children, and so he wanted to try to make up for it. But as we mentioned last week, uh, when your heart is... Longing for something, other things can't fill the void. He meant well, but uh, it didn't really, it didn't really work. And then on top of it, verse six told us that her rival, Hannah's rival, Penina, would provoke her bitterly for the sole purpose of irritating her. Why? Because the Lord had closed her womb. We mentioned last week that our rival is Satan. He does the same thing. He's the accuser of the brethren, and he's regularly pointing out. Uh, in us the things uh, where we lack and even trying to heap upon us the notion that God um, does not love us. And so uh, this was happening to Hannah regularly. In fact, verse 7, now we'll pick up where we left off, says it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. Penina would provoke Hannah. And so she wept and would not eat. Today, we would say those are the signs of depression, no appetite and um, crying, uncontrollable crying. She was depressed. And so Elkanah, her husband, verse 8, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? And then he says, he asks, am I not better to you than ten sons? Ladies in the room... If you were representing and answering for Hannah, what would you have said? (laughs) Never mind. We hear you. Look, let's put the best construction on this. Maybe he meant well. Ah, but boy, was that an insensitive thing to say, don't you think? 
it's a, it's a distraction technique. Here's what happens. When you're with someone who's in pain and their pain makes you uncomfortable, you try to move them out of their pain, whether it's timely or not. That's how, that's how we do things. Because their discomfort makes you uncomfortable and you don't want to be around people who are in pain, so you try to force the pain underground. So that's what he does. He's essentially saying, forget it. It's no big deal. Kids, schmids, who needs them? Am I not better to you? It's just an invasive, distracting technique. And you would think that she would be justified in saying all kinds of things like, no, bozo, you're not better than ten sons. You're not better than one son and all the rest. And yet she doesn't do that. Look at verse 9. Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. She did what he said. Very interesting to me. She submitted to what he said. She couldn't eat. She was weeping. He said something. Okay, maybe meant well, but it's kind of a knucklehead comment to make. And yet, rather respectfully, she seems to have submitted to what he said. She got something to eat and kind of got on with her, her life. And Eli, uh, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple what was he doing? Sitting down on the job, the priest? Not exactly. Um, he was sitting on a priestly official chair at the gate um, of Shiloh. And the gates, it was not just an entranceway. We can see in the Middle East and other places, and the remains of ancient gates today, that's where business, that's where the, that was the seat of government. That's where business was transacted. That's where decisions were made. That's where things took place. So this is where he's performing his priestly duties, this Eli. And verse 10, she, greatly uh, distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Um, Which of those responses to her distress, the praying or the crying, do you think is valid? Both. Isn't that interesting? Because often in the body of Christ, in our actions, we would uh, permit the praying but not the crying. In fact, we, in so many ways, say to our hurting members, if you really had confidence in Jesus, you would not cry. And so we force this kind of distress underground. Even in our own midst, there are people carrying a load of issues. Their hurt emotions have been forced to be buried inside alive. And uh, they don't go away. They come out in different ways, physical ways. And uh, how does that happen? Because we give the message to people that Jesus is enough. And you shouldn't be hurting, crying. You shouldn't be struggling with depression or anxiety or mood disorders. shouldn't have any of those things if you're really a devoted and faithful Christian. So we double victimize that kind of person. And that person comes into the midst but doesn't feel apart. That person has a deep, dark secret. Because you say to that person, how are you? And that person says, I'm fine. But they're not fine. They're dying. They're hurting. But they don't feel the permission to be honest and say, I'm greatly distressed. That's why I'm weeping before 
the Lord. So let me tell you something that could be helpful in keeping us from avoiding that error. There's a difference between a crisis of faith and a crisis of emotion. Crisis of faith, I don't believe any longer. That's a crisis of faith. Crisis of emotion, I know the Lord Jesus. He's my Savior. I believe as much in him and his redemptive work today as I ever have. But I hurt. Is it possible to believe and hurt at the same time? Of course it is. I mean, the God we bow before and worship is the one who gave us human emotions. They are to be experienced, not buried underground. We're doing better, churches are, in helping people who have emotional or mental illnesses. That way, they don't have to exercise the option of killing themselves. Uh, They could know, no, I can go to that place, and I could, in my distress, pray and also weep. They're both legitimate ventures, and they should not be forced underground. So if you're a naive Christian who thinks upon accepting Christ, life is a bowl of cherries, then you need to follow me around or any one of the ministers in this church this next week and sit across from the broken people we counsel with, some of the most godly, devote like Hannah, a giant in the faith, as you will see, who's having no crisis of faith, but a deep, painful crisis of emotion. Now she's meeting with gross insensitivity on the part of her husband. Let's see if her pastor, priest, Eli, does any better in a little while. Anyway, she is greatly distressed. She felt the permission. When she felt distress, it led her to do two things. One is to pray and one is to cry. Yeah, that's what she did. I hope you feel the permission to do both. And then you might say, yeah, but if... God, then why all this emotional pain that even God's kids go through? It's for this reason. I don't like this reason, but I think it's true. It's because God's love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. That's his goal. It's not to make us comfortable. It's to make us dependent on him. Hannah had no crisis of faith. Who do you think she ran to? Who was she clinging to? Who was she pouring her heart out before? Who was she praying to? Her barrenness has caused her to have an accentuated sense of dependence on Almighty God. And that's why he allowed it. Not only did she not have his divine disfavor, he took an interest in her life. And he's preparing her to birth in her and through her even greater things than a baby. By the way, Who are we talking about today, some 3,000 years removed? We're talking about Hannah, Hannah, who showed us the faithfulness of God and that even in emotional pain, there's joy because you have this sense, I'm not abandoned and my father is up to something good even though I feel really bad 
at present. And so the Lord wants to accentuate our dependence in him. Why? Because we have this inclination to be independent of God, even we Christians. It's one thing to depend upon Jesus for the remission of our sins, but to have to depend upon him for health and jobs and all the rest, I would prefer to be able to do those things myself. And that's why God allows sometimes a medical diagnosis to come our way that's quite distressing or a loss of job or change in our income status these things it's not because of divine disfavor or he's abandoned us it's to accentuate our hold on him he wants us to get to the point where we say oh god i'm clinging to you and i will not let you go that's exactly where god wants us and let's be honest We're more prone to do that when we're empty and barren and hurting than in times of prosperity, which is why some of us around here object to what's called the prosperity theology movement, which says that you as a Christian can lay claim to health and wealth. And if you don't have those things, it's because of your deficient faith. Well, I think the Bible teaches not the prosperity gospel, but the adversity gospel, meaning... In times of adversity, we really do better. Be honest. In times of prosperity, we're prone to put God on the shelf. But in times of adversity, we are running to him. We need help. We need outside help. And that's what's happening here. And so here's what Hannah did, verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. That's a reference to God as the cosmic ruler of the universe. The heavenly armies, including angels, stars, are all under his control. She, this little old lady, runs right to the source of help. She goes to cosmic deity. O Lord of hosts, if, not since, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant. My heavens, she had the notion that almighty God would consider the afflictions of a little lady named Hannah. Now, she didn't have a child, but she has what many of us with children don't have. She had a notion of the greatness and goodness of God many of us don't have. She knew she was eligible for his grace and mercy. If that will indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant in remembering and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. God, if you see fit to give me a child, I will dedicate the child to your full-time service at the tabernacle in Shiloh. That's what she's saying. And not only that, God, a razor will not come on his head. That's not a hairstyle, kind of like Scott's over there. Um, No, it's part of what's called a Nazarite vow. You can read about it in number six. It wasn't required. Voluntary. Have you ever been moved at a time in your Christian life to rededicate your life to the Lord? That's kind of what this is. Somebody says, I want to make a deeper dedication to Almighty God. And one of these signs of it was you don't shave. You, 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 you grow your hair. It was just the way it was in the, in the old days. And so she's essentially saying, I'm going to ensure, oh God, if you give me a child, that he will be subject to the Nazarite vow. He will really be dedicated to you. Now, don't confuse Nazarite with Nazarene. Nazarene is a reference to Nazareth in Israel. Nazareth, you know about Nazareth. 
If you come from Nazareth, you are a Nazarene. If you take this vow, you are a Nazirite. Nazir meaning to dedicate two totally different things. She said, by the way, I shared this in the last class. It's a kind of departure a little bit from the lesson. In Israel, when we go to serve Jews and Arabs, the groups we go to now refer to us as Notzrim. And that means followers of the one from Nazareth. We love that. Why? Because they have a really bad notion of Christians. Because Christ has been misrepresented both to Arabs and Jews there. Why? Well, it all started with the Crusades. You know, people carried crosses and then lopped off the heads of Arabs and Jews who didn't believe. So the Arabs and Jews in the Middle East have good memories. They remember the crusade mentality. But it's not just that. The Christian presence in the Holy Land today has done a horrific job. I give you this illustration. I took a group to Cana of Galilee. I wanted to have a marriage wedding renewal ceremony in a courtyard of a church in Cana. There's two churches. I went to one. It was a Greek Orthodox. I asked our group to stay on the bus while I speak to the Greek Orthodox priest about using just his courtyard, not the church, just the courtyard. So I went, and he was a striking figure of a man, uh, dressed all in black, a clerical garb, big hat. My goodness, he was tall, but this made him look like about nine feet tall. He had a big beard, for crying out loud, and this massive cross around his neck on a chain. It was a big silver cross, for crying out loud. I didn't even know how he carried it without getting a hernia. Anyway, there he was, and he had this thing, this vest, went all the way down to the ground, and I got to meet with this guy, Father So-and-so, and we sat in the courtyard, and and in the Middle East, you have to kind of have conversation before you do business, so to speak. And we're drinking coffee, and, and, uh, and uh, out of the blue, he says to me, he makes a statement. He said, it's the Jews, you know. <laughs> what do you mean? It's the Jews who are the problem. I thought, for crying out loud, that's me. But I don't want to say anything because I got 50 people on the bus. It's getting hot. I need the guy's courtyard. You know, we can try to work this out later. So I'm just taking, yeah, they're the, it's the Jews who are the problem. They cause all the problems in the Middle East. Well, we got to use the courtyard and all this kind of stuff, and I didn't make a big stink except to say, wow, now I see why my people are not all that interested in hearing about Jesus and becoming a Christian. That's the face of Christianity in the Middle East. He, he's the visible representative of the Lord Jesus, big old cross and the whole deal. And when we go and try to talk to them about uh, the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus, they say, what, and become like one of those guys? So part of the work you have to do in the Middle East is unlearning for years. You have to help people unlearn before they... Anyway, by God's grace, we've gone now about, about eight years, and now people refer to us not as Christians. They call us Notrim from Texas. They say, no dream from Texas. <laughs> Followers of the one from Nazareth. Isn't that good? No, no, not Christian. Not Baptist. They don't call us Baptist. Don't misunderstand. We are Baptists here. I am a Baptist. I'm an ordained Southern Baptist. I'm not looking for a better deal. We got our problems, but this is the best organization. I, I'm glad to be a Southern Baptist. I got that. But, but we don't try to make Baptists out of people over there. That doesn't get them saved, does it? So, so only knowing the one from Nazareth, Jesus gets them saved. So that's a beautiful thing to be called Notzrim, uh, followers of the one from Nazareth. This is different. This is uh, not Notzrim. This is Nazir, Nazir. 
Hannah says, this one will take a Nazarite vow. So verse 12, it came about as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. Can you understand this? In her distress, she says things on her heart. They're hard to verbalize. She's praying, but silently, but her lips are moving like this. He thinks she's drunk for crying out loud. So the husband was rather insensitive. Now the pastor is kind of dropping the ball also, huh? Here's a lady who's depending. She's a giant. She's depending on almighty God. And the priest accuses her of being drunk. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord. She could have cussed at the guy. She she could have said, hey, man, I'm leaving. I'm going to another church. No, my Lord. It's a term of respect. Hannah lacked the child. Hannah did not lack godliness. Oh, my goodness. She submitted to her insensitive husband. She's submitting to this priest who's missing the point. No, says she, my Lord. I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I'm not drunk. I'm oppressed in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. By the way, it appears that the stuff they had in the Bible you could get drunk on. Some people make the claim that um, the alcoholic beverages in those days were not capable to make you drunk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, no, no. She says, I'm not drunk wine nor strong drink. I poured out my heart, my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. Ah. Don't consider me to be a woman without value, a wicked woman. For I've spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. And then Eli answered and said, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife. Don't you like the way the Bible refers to that? Had relations. That's kind of nice, don't you think? Um, and Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Does that mean God forgot? Oops, I forgot. No, no, no. That's called a biblical accommodation. God is transcendent. Your mind can't lay hold of him in his totality. And so he accommodates himself to human language. When it says here that God remembers, it does not mean he forgot like we forgot. It means at this time. Now God is going to take action with regard to Hannah. And it came about in due time. I don't like that phrase because I've come to figure out it's due time as God reckons it, not as we do. God's time is uh, different than our time. So anyway, in God's due time, after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. Now we know what Samuel means. In Hebrew, it's Shmuel, Shmuel. So listen, it's made up of two words. Um, the last part, El, is part of the divine name, isn't it? Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon. Whenever you see a name in the Bible with those letters E-L in it, it's like Joel. It's a form 
of the divine name. And then before it, Shmuel comes from the Hebrew. Um, the holiest words in Judaism are found in Deuteronomy 6. We call it the Shema, which means, well, it goes like this, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's what we have here. Shema means to hear or listen. Shema El, it means God listened. God heard. Hannah asked. God heard. God opened her womb. God gave the baby. And Hannah named the baby Shmuel. Heard of God. Given by God. She could have named the baby George. Anything. But she dared not. Because she knew the baby was attributable to God and wanted him to get the glory. So she named the provision of God, asked of God, Samuel. And this tells me why uh, the Lord brings us, his children whom he loves, to various crisis points in our lives. Maybe in this area of not being able to have a child. But there are many others. There are cancer diagnoses. There are job layoffs. There are automobile accidents. Uh, All of these things befall God's people uh, as they do other people. What is God up to? I think he wants to bring us to a point where we also confess our barrenness, our inability to produce in our lives the things we need. It forces us to call out to God, to cling to him to look to him, to depend upon him. And then when he delivers what we need to be supplied and sustained, we must call it Samuel. Not literally, but in our minds, we must say, look what God has done. In our first hour, our class director's wife, Pam, who has a serious cancer diagnosis, gave us a beautiful report. Her recent evaluation and numbers were very, very good. In fact, the doctors were quite surprised. They went from like a 93 to a 13 in a very good direction. And Pam, this doll, said, to God be the glory. She named it Samuel. Oh, we thank God for the doctors and all the rest. Please don't misunderstand. But she called it Samuel. It's not about the doctors. It's not about the this. It's not about that. It's about the great physician. It's about the God who did not lead us this far so as to abandon us in the wilderness. He wants to birth in us the things we could not produce ourselves. That way we call it Samuel and people watch and, we, and they see the glory of God manifested in him taking care of all of our needs. So she calls the baby uh, Samuel. Verse 21, then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. So he's going back from Ramah to Shiloh, as was the custom. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. So a few things. One, see the word forever? In Hebrew, the word forever does not mean forever. I'll tell you why that's important. Because some will find things in the Old Testament and they'll say, why are you people not doing what it says? It says you must do this forever. 
Well, those are people who don't really know what the word forever in the Hebrew uh, thinking means. Forever doesn't mean forever. It means until the end of a certain eon or period of time. In this case, Hannah's dedication of her son Samuel is forever in the sense that from the time I bring him to Shiloh after he is weaned till the time he dies. He's not going to be in Shiloh serving there literally forever because when he dies, it's over. So forever, you can see, means forever in the sense until that particular eon period of time is fulfilled. That's very, very important. Otherwise, you're going to get people putting us back under the Old Testament law. We're seeing a bunch of that happen today. It's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. You ought to run like crazy from it. Not from the Hebrew roots of the faith, but the Hebrew roots movement is trying to obligate people like you and me, especially you Gentiles, to get under the Mosaic law. But it says right here, these are the statutes and ordinances of God, which he has given to you forever. Until a particular period of time comes to an end. What period of time? Until the old covenant was replaced by the new covenant. You see what I'm saying? That's why Paul says, are you so foolish having been set free from the law? You're going back under it? That's a rabbi. Paul said that. Now, be careful because almost every week I'm getting a call now from a grieving parent whose child got involved in the Hebrew Roots Movement. And now they think people like us, the church, is a pagan and, you know, missing the whole point. Now, we are missing the point if we miss the Hebrew Roots of the Bible. I got all that. That just makes for good Bible study. But to go back under the law of Moses, are you out of your mind? So, uh, anyway, forever doesn't mean forever. It means until the end of a period. Okay, so Hannah says to her husband, I'm not going to go till the child is weaned. In those days, a child could be on the breast for like until he, was three, he or she was three years old. That's a lot of time. So when the child was weaned and off the breast, you can see why the woman would like throw like a massive party. You understand this. It's like, oh, my goodness, I thought this would never end. So she says to her husband, that's what I want to happen before I go with him. And what does he say? Over my dead body. Nope. Verse 23. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. I mean, how many married women here would give anything to have their husband say something like that? To have their husband so trust, respect, honor, and love them that the husband would give way to what the wife finds important and meaningful. He said, do what seems best for you. And by the way, husbands ought to do that. We're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I got that. But it's easier for a man to do that when he has a woman who respects him, as she did. Remember early on in the text, she's struggling with things. He says, have something to eat. She does. This is one giant of the faith. Hannah is a giant in the faith. So he defers to her decision now because he trusted her. He had confidence in her. He knew she respected him and was devoted to him and all the rest. And she said, do what seems best to you. Remain until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull. So, do you have a Bible that doesn't say three-year-old bull? It says three bulls or something. Anyone have that? What does it say? What do you got? 
And three bowls. Okay, so this is an example of a, what's called a textual variant. We have ancient manuscripts. You lay them all, let's say, on a big table, and you compare the renderings so we can see what the... Uh, so we can get back to the original. We don't have the originals of the Bible. You know that? But we have thousands of manuscripts. So you compare the manuscripts. It's called the science of textual criticism. And you look to see the renderings. And in this case... We don't know. Some of the manuscripts say three bulls. Some of them say a bull three years old. Why do I bring this up? Because I don't want to deny there are textual variants like this, but I want you to see. Not any point of significance or doctrine is in question in the Bible. That's why I'm bringing it up. There is no book as reliable as the book you have with you right now called the Bible. Based on the science of textual... If you want to criticize Homer's Iliad and Odyssey or the works of Shakespeare, any of these people, you could because they're not based nearly on as reliable the volume of textual uh, evidence as is the Bible. That's a whole big deal to get into another day. I just want you to see. Uh, my translation says, uh, you know, one three-year-old bull, you got three bulls, to which I say, who cares? What's the difference? How's that going to affect your life? Thousands of years. And what we have is an extremely reliable text. Okay, so he takes a bull or three, one ephah of flour, a jug of wine, brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Can you imagine the journey? The mama is bringing the child. She's not going home with the child. Hannah's going to leave Samuel there in keeping with her vow. But wait just a second. <sighs> Can't you hear Hannah thinking? Can't you hear Hannah saying to God, God, give me a break. Yeah, I made this vow. But I was emotionally distraught at the time. I didn't really mean it. Let me off the hook. Too tough. It's my child. I'm not leaving him here. <laughs> I didn't know what I was saying. It was just idle words. <laughs> Surely you don't take him seriously. Could she have said that? Yeah. But she did not. Why not? Because she's a giant. That's why. Panina's pointing out all her inadequacies. <sighs> but she's a spiritual giant while all this is going on. She took her vow seriously. In other words, Hannah, though she had a gaping hole in her life, did not lack what many of us lack. Hannah took her vows seriously, her marital vows, her vows to the Lord. We do not. Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? Bum, 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 sickness and health, good things, till death do his part? I do. And do you take this woman to be till death do his part? I do. And then statistically, we find out they don't. <clears throat> Hannah didn't have a child, but Hannah had what many of us don't have, an appreciation for the importance of our vows uttered to Almighty God. Yeah, he was birthing in her life something way beyond the child. 
<clears throat> way beyond a child. Today, our words mean little or nothing. That's why the word of God is meaning less and less to the next generation. Because our words mean nothing. Hey, I'll call you tomorrow. And then you don't. See, that's not a big thing. Yeah, it is. Why'd you say it if you're not going to do it? Hey, you asked me for something. I'll bring it over to your house on Wednesday. And you don't do it. Then why'd you say it? Every time something like that happens, words of authority figures are devalued more and more and more. And then we stand up and fight about the inerrancy and authority of the word of God. Why should people respect God's words when they're finding that the words of God's people can't be trusted? Don't open up your big mouth. Don't make a a promise, a vow, unless you're intent on fulfilling it. Words are important. Well, they were to Hannah. So she brings the child. You say, she's going to bring this young child to this old guy, Eli? No, 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 no. At the tabernacle, there were ladies who would care for Samuel. He would be in good hands. So verse 25, then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. And she said, Hannah said to Eli, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. So that would have been about three years ago. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. In closing, I want to ask you this question. See the last phrase? And he worshiped the Lord there? Let's take a vote. Two options. The he is a reference to Samuel, who worshiped the Lord there. Or the he is a reference to Eli who worshiped the Lord there, and he worshiped the Lord there. How many people here think it's a reference to Samuel? Would you please raise your hand? Thank you so much for being bold and brave. How many people think it's a reference to Eli? Would you raise your hand? There you go. And even the professional theologians and scholars are divided just as we are. We don't know. It's just one of those things. I would just, yeah, go ahead, brother. Yeah, that's wrong. <laughs> it's a singular masculine pronoun in the Hebrew. It's not plural. What translation do you have there? Yeah, see, it's not a translation, actually. It's more like a paraphrase. Now, it's a really good one. And the people who did that are removing the burden of us wrestling with the text here by taking out the he and putting in the they. Forget about whether it's Samuel or Eli. Everybody worshiped there. They. So that's cool, but not accurate. So um, here, here's a, yeah, go ahead, brother. Some verses leave out the he. Yeah. So, ah. Uh, so Texas Receptus is the King James is based on that, and you're saying Spanish translations leave out the heat. So that is only one of the things wrong with you Spanish-speaking people. <laughs> I'm just trying to say. Good. Thank you for confessing that. So, okay. So here's the deal. Let me throw in my two cents here, um, because I want to, and I have the microphone. 
Um, I really want the he to be a reference to Eli. I don't know exactly if it is, but I want it to be because it makes for a good point. And, and <laughs> here's the point. Uh, Hannah met up with an insensitive husband and an insensitive spiritual leader. And yet she remained respectful to both and so dependent on God that the husband gave way and said to her, whatever you think is right, do it. And now I think her faithfulness in coming back and keeping her vow three years after and saying, remember, I'm the woman who grieved and was distressed and we prayed and look what God has done. Here's the baby. And now I'm dedicating him to the Lord's service. I think her unbelievable commitment and faithfulness even moved her holy man to worship almighty God. That's what I think. You're entitled to your own opinion. Yes, Randy. Uh, thank you, brother. And uh, what uh, Brother Randy is saying, Eli and Phineas didn't do so hot. Eli's sons. So, and we're going to run into them. Uh, I think Brother Chuck's going to get us there or something. I, I try to leave the negative stuck, stuff for Brother Chuck. Yeah. It just fits him a little more. Uh, better. Okay, look, folks. Close with this. Barrenness. Physical. Spiritual, financial, vocational, relational, barrenness is not the end. It's God's starting point. For him to birth in us what counts for eternity. Would that we trust him the way Hannah did. She's a heroine of the faith. I want to be like Hannah. I hope you do as well. Lord Jesus. Help us to look to you, depend on you in our distress, cry out to you, pour out our heart to you, and wait on you so that in due season you will meet all our needs and satisfy the longing of our hearts. In due season, as you reckon it, and for your glory, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Hope to see you next time.